The Bane Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the sad truth about turtles all the way down. There's a bottom, and it's a two-headed, yellow-bellied slider. Worst sodden with curry, and bests slathered in glory. Don't you mean verse? Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Assistant Editor Christopher Rocchio. Hey, this time we talked to Frank Chadwick about his new military science fiction novel, Chain of Command. Frank is not only the author of four books for Bain, he's also a legendary game designer. He's created a very complete world for his U.S. Space Navy to fight in in Chain of Command. And the characters and stories are great, too. And uh, Frank will tell us all about that. I really, um, really enjoyed this book for its complexity and the fact that there are cool space battles. Amen to that. And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of the Liaden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news. Oh, boy, oh, gee. Oktoberfest is here. Look at all the people of northern European descent out there, as 23andMe puts it. Beer guzzling, dancing in lederhosen, bouncing in dirndls, which is not a name for the fairy underground in Germanic literature, but something far more important and alluring. So grab a Verst, or a Worst, and get the best new hardcovers all frothing at booksellers next Tuesday. The Monster Hunter Files, edited by Larry Correa and Brian Thomas Schmidt. You asked for stories by great writers set in Larry Korea's Monster Hunter universe, and now you've got it. Discover what happened when Agent Franks took on the Nazis in World War II. Uncover how the Vatican's combat exorcists deal with old ones in Mexico. And find out exactly what takes place in a turf war between trailer park elves and gnomes. From the most powerful of mystical beings to MHI's humble janitor, see the world of professional monster hunting like never before. Featuring 17 all-new tales based on Larry Correa's best-selling series from authors like Jim Butcher, John Ringo, Jessica Day-George, Jonathan Mayberry, Faith Hunter, and Mike Coopery, Brad R. Torgerson, Jody Lynn Nye, Alex Schwartzman, and more. And, of course, there's a story by Larry himself. Yes, there is. Um, we'll talk to Frank Chadwick about this in a moment, but out now is Chain of Command by Frank Chadwick. This is a really sharp, gritty military SF novel with excellent space battles, great characters, and a formidable and clever enemy, and lots more. A captain finds his calling. Lieutenant Sam Bitka, U.S. Naval Reserve, is fed up with the military. He just wants to get back to his civilian job, leave the infighting and pettiness of careerist officers behind. Then a real war breaks out between humans and the alien Viroki. As a tactical officer aboard the deep space destroyer, U.S. Puebla Sam is thrust into the thick of things, and he finds himself in command of the Puebla, a job he is far from certain he can perform without screwing up. Not only must Sam deal with his stunned and reeling leaders in the human task force, but he also must face down a particularly brilliant alien enemy who's made a deep study of human motivation and how to exploit it. This is an enemy who intends to use human indecision as a weapon to destroy the fleet. 
Now this freshly minted captain must muster his bravery and learn what hundreds of leaders before him have discovered. The Chain of Command stops here. Chain of Command by Frank Chadwick and The Monster Hunter Files, edited by Larry Correa and Brian Thomas Schmidt, are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Frank Chadwick to the podcast. Hey, Frank. Hey, Tony. How you doing? Pretty good. Um, Frank Chadwick is the New York Times number one best-selling nonfiction author of of uh, over 200 books, articles, and columns on military history and military affairs, as well as over 100 military and science fiction board and role-playing games. Frank's a is like a master class, uh, grandmaster uh, game designer, um, well known in the in the industry. His game Space 1889 was the first steampunk game and remains a cult favorite. And Frank's done just lots of other games. Uh, his SF novels include How Dark the World Becomes, uh, steampunk thriller The Forever Engine, which is a really great steampunk novel, maybe the best I've ever encountered, uh, and Come the Revolution. Now at Booksellers Everywhere is military science fiction novel Chain of Command. Frank, uh, Chain of Command is a bit of a departure um, from your previous work for Bane. You've had uh, these heroes who are rogues and tough guys. Um, but this time we follow Sam Bitka, who is, at least at the story start, he's, just, he's, he's kind of a mild-mannered uh, tactical officer aboard a destroyer in the Space Navy, the peacetime Space Navy of the United States of North America. He's a reservist on duty. And uh, so what's, what's Sam's position like as we begin on the USS Puebla as we begin the, uh, the story? even uh, on board the ship um, for a couple of reasons. Um, he's a reservist, and in, in this Navy, he's run by career officers, but uh, it's still got a few people that are called, recalled to duty. And there's a crisis going on, so there's more than usual who the reservists that have been called. But still, there's that kind of a social gulf between them. Um, and so he's kind of a second-class officer by virtue of being a reservist instead of an academy graduate or regular. Um, he's also a tactical officer, and this is a Navy that hasn't fought a war in, well, it's never really fought an interstellar war. So they have tactical officers, but they don't ever get to do much of anything. And so over the course of the last 150 to 100 years, the best and brightest of all tended to go into operations, uh, not tactical. And so he's looked down upon a bit just by virtue of being a tactical officer. He's in charge of the na of the weapon systems on the ship as we begin. That's and, right. And that's like, you know, something you don't want to be if you're in this Navy. Right, because, they, because they're just stuff that you polish and train on, but you never use them. I mean, what they use, what they use all the time are astrogators and communication specialists and engineers to get from star to star and to move people around and to do all their stuff in, the, in, in kind of living memory of man. And, and finally, he's, he's an outsider because he doesn't really self-identify as Navy. Um, he, he is a reservist. He's got a life, and his life is back on Earth. Um, he's got a career. Uh, he's got plans. He's uh, you know, things are going well for him, and he and he's not bothered by having this reserve commitment. He does it willingly, and he's he's happy to do it. 
but but that's not who he sees himself as being. He's not. He doesn't see himself as Navy through and through. He's he's a reservist who's going to do his hitch, his two years, or, or however long they have him back for, and, and it is two years, and then he's going to go back to his job and his life and his career. And 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 so his he's not as invested in the Navy cult, the culture of the Navy, as a lot of the people around him. And he's moving up the culture, uh, the cultural. He's moving up the chain um, of uh, of executives at. Um, he's, he's in a corporation that that makes what maker boxes or uh, maker software. Uh, they actually they make um, f- fabricators. Fabricators is uh, kind of a, a more advanced version of what we call three D printers, but it's a uh, hundred years more advanced. Um, uh, and that's that's. Uh, the main means of kind of decentralized manufacturing in this world. So yeah, his company makes fabricators, and he's pretty familiar with that. But yeah, that's where, and and of course, there's a lot of software involved in terms of how, getting the software design code to manufacture what it is you're using the fabricator to manufacture. You bring this back in later in the book wonderfully. I think um, it's really cool when it comes back what his his civilian specialty is. So. Um, you, you set up this shipboard culture at the start of the story extremely um, well. It's how in general would the whole um, Space Navy fit into the larger world you've built, built in the novel? Um, why is there, you know, it hadn't fought in 100 years or more. Why is there even a, a human Space Navy? Well, there are small conflicts. There hasn't been an interstellar war, but there are there are occasional small conflicts. Um, and one of the reasons is that there is no... Um, there's no galactic government. I mean, even a little chunk of the galaxy that they that they have. They're part of um, a six. It's called the Kotohas, which means the stellar commonwealth in the, the language of the race that founded it, the Baroki. But there are six intelligent species. They haven't encountered anyone else. They, there's no one outside of this that they know of. Um, they've gotten along pretty well for the 300 years that they've had space travel. There's the last hundred years is when humans have been part of it, when we were contacted. Um, but there are small wars that go on for one reason, because none of the cultures have a single unitary government either. Um, there's like about 170 different nation states in the Kotohas divided among these six intelligent species. Um, so n- none of the species are unified in that sense. They're, they all kind of look it, it, it politically uh, a, a bit like we do in the sense that a, a planet's a big place. You, know, you have a lot of different cultures in, in it, and, um, and and they haven't they haven't unified. So there's always some fighting going on, although it's never been a massive interstellar war yet. <laughs> so tell us a, a... what happens exactly. That's exactly. Uh, well, that's. I, I think people look at the cover and they're going to know that that's probably coming. That's probably coming. Yes, <laughs> we can say it. Say, <laughs> this is not going to be um, a uh, social novel set in a peacetime future navy. How does you, you explain a little bit? Our, our bad guys of a sort, at least, um, are, are going to be the Viroki, um, and but the Viroki are not a monoculture. Can you sort of set why? Are they the organizers of this? Where does this star drive come into all this? What and how does how has that affected humanity's relationship with with the Viroki and other species? And that's really the key 
that's kind of the key driving thing in um, all of these novels about the Kotohas. Um, you know, this is the third novel about uh, humans in the Kotohas, and uh, the uh, although it's the first Sam Bitka novel, and the, the th about 300 years prior to the novel, uh, the Viroki invented the jump drive. Um, they, they developed the jump drive. And at that point, they began exploring, and they started counter encountering other intelligent species who didn't have this interstellar drive. So the Kotohas is these species that they've encountered, and the Viroki haven't conquered them. There's The Viroki maintain the intellectual property rights to the jump drive, and they don't let anyone else even know how it works. So that's kind of their edge economically. Um, and although they license it, uh, it's all kind of black box licensing. You lease the drive, you you don't know how it works, you plug it in. Um, so that's kind of their their economic and and, and uh, well, mostly economic, but also to an extent political hold on the other nations. It's not a direct one at all, but it's one that people are beginning to chafe under. So all of the the U.S. Navy spaceships have Baroque drives. Yeah. Starships, yeah. Yeah, the, the Viroki drives are all is the only is the only star drive available. They're all made by Viroki manufacturers, which might be a bit of a problem if they become your enemies. Then it, it could be. Um, of course, they're not politically unified either, which means you're you're not likely to become enemies with the Viroki. Yeah. Um, so explain a little bit about that because this really becomes important in the book. The fact is that the Viroki are they're not divided into nations like. Uh, humans are, but they do have these uh, alliance structures, right? Well, no, they they really are divided into nations. It, they, but they also have other things that kind of cut across that. They have secret brotherhoods that are multi, you know, that that don't follow national boundary lines. Um, they have, um, but they but they do have. There are actually twenty seven sovereign Baroque nations, um, and the strongest of the at least was up until recently the, the most powerful of them was the uh, uh was the, uh, the 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 commonwealth of baka um and and those people are called the ubakai um and and there's and, and there is some conflict there's a conflict with them at the start of this as well but there are other nations other Viroki nations as well um but for one thing the secret brotherhoods cut across that for another thing the large Viroki trading houses the economic uh, corporations are all what we would call multinational. They are, or really non non-national, supranational, um, and uh, the and the and the most important of those are the six that build the jump drives because that, that's the most lucrative technology going right now. The IP of the uh, of the drive is very important in uh, in the, how dark the world becomes and uh, and come the revolution. The I mean, it's sort of central to the <laughs> to those plots. Um, and this one too. Uh, it is, and the, inter the you know, when we talk about the intellectual property law, that's the thing that's really big chafe on people because in order to keep the, the drive as their intellectual property, they've made everybody sign on to the Viroki intellectual property covenants, which are different than than ours. I mean, they're basically it's patent law, but it's a different sort of patent law because it holds that any discovery you make that's predicated on knowledge that's already owned belongs to the person who owns that. So you literally can't make a better mousetrap because it belongs to the guy who already has mousetraps. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really been 
a drag on uh, scientific research and discovery. And it's put there's a lot it's put people, a lot of humans into into ghetto like situations over over time. Uh huh. And and it, and it's you know humans are kind of in demand for entertainment. You know, great musicians and they love our adventure adventure Hollywood uh, things, but. Um, there's not a lot of demand for physicists and engineers, and we're not making as many of them as we were. And there's a lot of people very concerned about what that means for our future. Hmm. Uh, nothing like today, where <laughs> this cell phone has 3,000 million patents, and and uh, you got to watch out every moment from your trolls. Uh, uh, never mind. So it, <laughs> you have a... You have a fascinating note on some of the research that on, on the human side that went into the chain of command. You say the original inspiration came to you after reading James Hornfisher's uh, Neptune's Inferno, which is a great book. What else was an influence, um, and how was that an influence, and what else was an influence uh, or help in writing the book? There's a, I think you, you put a lot into uh, the really background good. of this thing. Yeah, I did. I, that's a really good question. Um, the... The thing about Hornfisher's book is, in addition to being a terrific read, I mean, it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a history book that reads in some ways like an adventure story. Um, a very exciting read, but it's also, it, it, it captures this kind of moment that you're, I'm not, I wasn't used to in reading history, and that is this, the feeling of being in an armed service at the beginning of a war that everybody psychologically thought they were ready for, and it turns out they really weren't. Um, they really weren't psychologically prepared for this, for the war they got. Um, and all these things go wrong. Um, it, 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 it's incredibly difficult to let loose of all these peacetime habits that make perfect sense in peacetime and are completely dysfunctional in wartime. Um, the, that, you know, that, that's really what captivated me. And, 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 of course, the story of all the fighting off Guadalcanal, the naval fighting, is, is interesting also. Uh, but I wasn't trying to reproduce the Guadalcanal campaign. Um, I was more interested in that, in, in, what, in, that, in what that felt like to be in a war that no one's ready for and trying to just deal with that. And so the other stuff I read was mostly memoir material from uh, early in the war, uh, from the U.S. Navy, primarily destroyer and submarine memoirs, and and, and some work about uh, about that. I wanted to know what it was like in the small ships and boats. Um, so, uh, Wake the Wahoo and a, and a book on uh, uh, the USS Tang, and a couple books by destroyer captains, kind of memoirs, and and, and also the Kane Mutiny, uh, Herman Wolk's novel, because Herman Wolk. Um, it has stuff in it you can't get from a history book. Uh, Woke was uh, an officer on a destroyer minesweeper in World War II in the Pacific, ended up the executive officer of one. And boy, you're not going to get a better read on what it feels like to be in one of those, you know, work and live and fight in one of those ships. And, and also, but also just that the, 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 um, the politics and the personalities of people and, 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 and ship captains and their subordinates and how they react to each other, not just on the cane, but also some of the other ships, because some of the characters have friends and other things. It's a, a terrifically, it's a, it's a great novel. I mean, that's why, uh, that's why it's, it, it's gotten so much attention over the years, but it's also 
a really good document about what it felt like to be in those ships and, and to fight in those ships. And I also and I also did a, I also used Nicholas Montserrat's The Cruel Sea, which is not about the U.S. Navy. It's about the Royal Navy, but very similar where you have a, a, a regular officer and, he, and in wartime he has these reservist officers and how they come along. Some of them do, some of them don't. All and, and, and trying to deal with a situation that they uh, that they weren't really prepared for at the start of the war. So that, that that's the sort of reading I did. Yeah, and but I mean they by not being prepared for it was just it, 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 you have your your superiors are just or guys that don't have any more experience with warfare than anybody else and nobody knows what the hell they're doing basically in many ways they have technical expertise but that's about it that's right and they have theories as to how the war is going to go um, everybody's theorized about what they think the war is going to be like, which is just like you know, it was in a, in a, everywhere we go into. And some of those theories might be right, but a lot of them aren't going to be right. Um, we, uh, the U.S. Navy, every, every one of the things that people get criticized, they get the, the, the senior leaders get criticized in the surface actions. And the U.S. Navy was they didn't use radar. They had all this. They had this great new thing, radar. And they, they've hardly ever used it in the first uh, year of the war. And it's because they had spent years perfecting night combat drills that relied on visual target acquisition and ranging. And they were really good at that. And then someone comes along and says, here's this radar thing. Well, I don't know if that works or not, but they know this other thing works. And so they stick with what they know, even though radar would have given them a terrific edge. And it did once they finally started using it. But it's not like they were idiots. That's just really basic human nature. When you've invested that much time in getting really good at something, it's hard to just throw that away and use a gizmo instead. Yeah, and there will be mistakes on the in the learning curve of the gizmo that could be horrific as well. Um, but but Sam is uh, it is peculiarly suited to this because he's really good at thinking on his feet and. Um, and, and using experience as his guide, right? Yes. Um, he's uh, he's not locked. And this may be one of the advantages of being a reservist. I mean, he's not, he hasn't been locked into, uh, to as great an extent, peacetime practices. Because his peacetime practices have nothing to do with the Navy. Um, so in that sense, he's got a little bit of an edge in terms of not having that routine of thinking. That's also a disadvantage when he ends up in some positions of responsibility and 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 doesn't have the experience. And he knows that he doesn't have the experience to deal with some of the positions he's in. He's got to figure that out as he goes too. But I hate to I hate to use the term out of the box thinker because it's been so overused. But he does have an advantage over some of the others in that respect. He also is a good listener, which is is perhaps his main skill. Um, and he, uh, you get you, you have some pretty good discussions of of the philosophy of being a captain or an XO and and such in there that I assume you took from your research as well as you know your own own experience and such. Some writing on it on, on leadership that really, really is 
pretty sound stuff. And that's, uh, and yeah, I drew on some of that, and then actually some of that shows up in the course of the novel. It's kind of an, it actually becomes kind of some organizing principles for some of the things that happen to him and how he reacts to them. And he's able to kind of draw on those to, to, to help focus on a correct response in certain cases. Yeah. So I, I, I like that part of it too. I like having those little those little elements of actual leadership advice that that actually had application to all these things that happened to him. Yeah, and then he then he goes and tries to do something about it. So it's not just uh, theoretical. So what? Uh, why are the Baroque? Why do they start this? Uh, why does this Masonic uh, Brotherhood? <laughs> decide they need to get... <laughs> that's not a bad way of looking at a, a, a secret brotherhood these secret brotherhoods that would kind of like the masons i suppose well the masons are behind everything and it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah either that or the bavarian illuminati yes that's right the illuminati and the masons start the war so what why do they do this what's the point in getting humanity in a shooting war It's not just them. It's not just them, but I mean, and I don't want to go too much into, there are some twists in the novel, but the basic problem that they have is um, in looking at the the humans, um, humans are, unlike, unlike the other races, consistently unwilling to accept the limitations of the, of the uh, intellectual property. Uh, and, and the so they the the here there's a, certainly a, an element of Roki who are convinced eventually the humans are going to get around it somehow, um, and when they do they're going to pull out of the, the, the Kotohas once they get a star drive of their own, and then there's no reason why everybody else will stick with the Viroki, and the, and the, and the real fear is that the humans are just kind of smarter than the Viroki, and that. In the long run, they're going to come out on top, and but but they, they also have a, this notion that the humans are also pretty violent, and uh, compared to others, and a little bit unpredictable, and so accepting that means essentially putting their fate, their future, in the hands of humans who they don't really trust their judgment. You know, they, they yeah they're, yeah they're smart, but I mean. Uh, are we going to let them decide what happens to us? So that's what that's what really is is, is kind of driving this. Even though the Baroque are on top, there's this real there's a fascination with humans in some ways an admiration, but there's a lot of fear underneath it as well. Those clever monkeys—they're going to be the death of us. <laughs> the, yes. The great character on the Baroque side is uh, speaker for the enemy. Uh, Takar Nuvash, who is a very, he has a very subtle view of humanity. He loves music. Um, um, how is he related to, in the war? Um, how's he pulled into it? And um, just tell us a little bit about his character. Okay, yeah, he, and he's a he's a fun character. Um, the the uh, he's the only other point of view, and I wanted a a a. a, a a, a window into the adversaries, the enemy, and so most of the almost the entire novel is from Sam's point of view, but periodically there's a chapter from Nuvash's point of view. So you see what's going on on the other side. He's a 
he's called the speaker for the enemy, which is what the Baroque called their inte- military intelligence officers. He's, um, he specializes in knowing uh, a lot about the enemy. And he's actually, in previous, uh, in his career, served a bunch of liaison assignments, naval liaison assignments with uh, human navies. He's gotten to know humans pretty well. He really likes humans. Um, he kind of understands the fear of them. He has some ambivalence. You know, it's he has some ambivalence about whether or not he ought to be afraid of them as as much as everybody else is. Um, but he's so he's got some complicated. His feelings about humans are definitely complicated. Um, he's a loyal officer to his navy. Um, he's got some questions as to the wisdom and really even the logic of war of the war when it breaks out and he's that's one of the things he struggles with a lot through it and even when he decides that even the, that the war may be pretty screwed up he's still loyal to it, it's still his navy it's still his people he can't um it, it, I, I, this is a spoiler alert i suppose but if anybody's expecting this guy to turn on his own species that's not gonna happen yeah no he um in fact he's the one the one of the Viroki that makes the war a lot more dangerous and, and difficult because he gives good advice. Yes, yes, he, yeah, he has some excellent ideas. He's, he, he makes some mistakes along the way too. Um, the uh, and, uh, and and kind of so he's not like it's not like he's the evil super genius on the other side because he's not a super genius and he's not evil. He's a um, he's a I, I think a really interesting character because he is. He's not infallible, and he's also not. Um, his feelings are more complicated than just being a good guy or a bad guy. Yeah, um, he's he's just a guy uh, that that happens to be on the other side. Yeah. Um, he um, my I, favorite scene with with um, him is. <laughs> He has a memory of getting in an elevator with some humans and hearing this amazing, like celestial uh, noise coming out from the uh, from the elevator speakers, and and all the humans are like not even paying attention to it. And he's just captive, and you realize that he's he's been listening to elevator music, literally. Yes. <laughs> He's ever heard, and the humans just take it for granted. That's and that's one of his, yeah, it's literally elevator music. And um, and he says even some of them hum along. He says most humans can sing or whistle or hum really well, and they just don't have any idea how rare that is to be able to make music that casually. You know, the uh, that's that's the, that's the continuing from their point of view paradox of humans is that there's such. All of them, if so many of them are just great artists. I mean, there's great artists that, that actually make a living doing it out there, but just the average person, man or woman, can hum or whistle or sing, and most Viroki can't do that. Most of the other species can't do that. They don't have that sense of music. And then at the same time, that humans are, can be so aggressive and violent and everything, and they, they just can't. You put all that together, and it doesn't make sense to them. Um, another fun character on the on the human side, um, and Sam's Sam doesn't have a whole lot of allies that are. Um, he has them pop up occasionally among the shifting professional circumstances, but um, he he gets in touch with this uh, intelligence officer. He never meets her until the very end of the book, 
uh, Cassandra Atwater Jones. At times, she seems to be the only one who isn't in some way determined to bring down Sam. <laughs> you know, damn the war. We're going to get this captain, put this captain in his place. Who cares whether he wins or lose? You know, um, at times, she seems to be his real uh, one ally that he that he needs and that he counts on. Um, she does. Um, she's, uh, well, she's, yeah, she's uh, one of my other favorite characters in the book. Uh, and that's pretty obvious. That's why I, I write her, but, um, she's a, uh, and, and this coalition that Sam is part of is actually a four nation coalition. One of the nations being the European, Western European union, the other two being Nigeria and India, and, and and of course it's the United States of North America. And she's so on the combined staff. She's a the intelligence officer for their task force, uh, and she's Royal Navy. She's a uh, she's a commander in the Royal Navy, um, and uh, she's. I, I would guess if you were to say one thing about her is that she does not suffer fools lightly, um, and she's. Um, and there is a, a, a lot of this peacetime business that's going on. She just she, she's a, she's a fairly junior officer. She can't stand up to an admiral. She, but she's she, since she's Royal Navy and not U.S. Navy, um, she's got a little bit of latitude in terms of just how she behaves uh, because she can kind of play the eccentric. And uh, she's also really good at the. Um... <laughs> At the put down that you don't know that you've just been put down till you walk away and 10 minutes later you're like oh my god she really got that one in there yes she does so she always stops short of actual insubordination but afterwards you realize oh boy <laughs> yeah um so that's cassandra atwater jones and she is an she's a she's not just there for you know fun i mean she's a she's has an important position in the um in this combined task force. Yeah. I mean, she's one of the people that brings Sam's insight to the higher levels. Yes, she is. Yes. Um, the, uh, as an intelligence officer, she's got a, she's, uh, she has kind of, she can kind of, um, talk to people and get insights and then, and then put them where they need to be pretty quickly. And, uh, Early on, she uh, establishes a rapport with him when he kind of inadvertently opens her eyes to some procedures that are going on, just aren't working the way people think they are. But no one has told her, explained that to her, because it would be embarrassing. Um, and, and, and Sam does. And so that kind of, uh, and that's kind of the beginning of their of their relationship there. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this, the, because the book is called Chain of Command. Um Talk about the chain of command and chain of command. Um, I mean, it's you know, it says on the back of the book that cha that Sam eventually be that he becomes captain of the Puebla. Um, so it's I don't think it's a big spoiler, um, and anyone that right. opens it will expect that Sam's going to be you know something like that's going to happen. Um, he he always seems like a hair's breadth away from getting demoted, fired, court-martialed. And he's getting derided, even while he's really the only captain that's winning. He's got a little destroyer. The Puebla is not a star drive ship, right? It's a it's a system ship, and around this um, planet Katak. Um, yet he he does have a few allies, uh, especially among the junior officers. Can you just kind of give us an idea of these waters? I mean, what's 
he has a really weird captain when we st- who was the XO, I guess, when we started. The captain got killed. Um, he's got rivals. He's got superiors who don't trust him because he was a reservist. Um, just give us an idea of the web he's in, even while he's trying to you know save all their lives and fight the enemy. a little bit on it before, but the real situation he's in is that it is a peacetime Navy, which means that you've got a lot of people in command positions who are really not, their eye isn't on what they're doing now, their eye is on what's coming next. Um, They're getting ready for the next thing. They're getting ready to retire and move into defense consulting. They're getting ready to for a slot on the Admiral's staff. They're, They're seeing themselves uh, it, it, it's just kind of taking one step up this ladder and not focused on the, the, that step itself so much. Um, so he, so he's, he's, he faces a lot of that at first. Um, he also faces the, um, the, 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 the resentment or the, at least the gulf between regulars and reservists, between operations and tactical, and all those things kind of uh, work against him. Over the course of the novel, though, for for a lot of these people, um, those things start to slip away, and they and what does start emerging is uh, kind of a collective sense of who they are right in the moment, and that they're all officers, all trying to do the same thing, and that and that that is part of the changes, and some of them get that, and some of them don't get it very well. And, and that becomes kind of the new dividing line eventually. Um, but he, he eventually, as you say, he collects more and more people. That it's not so much allies, it's just people start getting it. That um, don't worry about next year, worry about you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. And, 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 and you know, this, is where we're, this is where we live or die, is right in this moment and, and right in this situation we're in and how do we... How do we get through this, and how do we how do we come out on top? Um, so you know, that's kind of one of the things that that that's that's kind of one of the, the really important things in the novel that happens over time. But but it takes a while to get there, and it takes and it's not probably. You know, I mean, we're seeing it through one guy's eye, but I mean, something similar is happening all over the place, and he's not the only guy who gets it. But um, but he's the one we see it through. You know, and he's kind of uniquely placed in in, in, in some ways to to see it part of much more of the bigger picture than other people do. Tell us a little bit about the the weapons and the ships. Um, and uh, I, you do a great job of showing how battle tactics change also um, after contact with the enemy. And, and one of the things that's I mean, these guys are floating around except when they're accelerating, right? We don't have any artificial gravity and such. have a spinning habitat wheel and that's so they get the effect of artificial gravity but the little destroyers are too small to have that so yeah in the destroyers they're in zero g all the time and they aren't meant to be they understand very well that you can't be in zero g forever and not have serious health effects so the destroyers are supposed to be carried around by a carrier um but their carrier gets banged up at the beginning of the story um you do, you're on the destroyers for fairly short duration missions. Um, they're forced to use. It. They're forced to be in a destroyer for quite a long time in zero g over the course of the novel, and that's got some. You know, that's had some ramifications that everybody's aware of, but they're. 
it's just something you have to do. Um, but the destroyer, uh, the, the the main weapons uh, that the, that the ships have are the main offensive weapon is a, a, a missile that either is self-propelled or fired by a coil gun. In the case of the destroyers, it's fired by an electromagnetic coil gun to accelerate it, and uh, it's got a nuclear warhead. So when the when the fire lance missile detonates uh, its nuclear warhead, that pumps about 30 laser rods that kick out X-ray lasers that are really high energy. And that's kind of a, a derivation of the what they were going to do with the Star Wars anti-ballistic missile system. And they didn't work out the engineering bugs. So it's the lasers that do the damage, but it's a nuclear pump. Yeah. And it's, so I mean, one of the things that has never kind of sat well with me was the notion that at the distances you got in space, you could actually run a missile into another ship. Because you're going to see it coming from a long way away. If you've got any sort of point defense system that's, uh, that's laser-based, that's, you know, speed of light, it's really hard to miss it. Um, the, uh, you can evade and everything, but sooner or later you've got to evade back toward the ship. Well, I could never really work out a very satisfactory way of actually hitting a ship with a missile. Yes. But you can get it within 5,000 kilometers. That's a lot easier task. Um, so that's, that's the offensive weapon. And then defensively, they have point defense lasers to try to take out those missiles. Yeah, which become important in the in the novel as well. Um, so what what would be the tactics then? Uh, oh, okay. So the tactics are ideally uh, what they think their tactics, among other things, are to uh, avoid detection with what's called a thermal shroud, which is a it, a, a, a big hemispheric thing that blocks infrared radiation. Um, and it's got liquid hydrogen cooling tubes in it, so you're really you're really absorbing the radiation, and then pumping out your radiators at the rear. Um, but ideally, you're going to keep somebody from seeing you. It in, in practice, that's very difficult to do. It sounds better in theory than it, it would really work in practice. So, um, but the the theoretical tactics are you do that to kind of get close, and then you pump out missiles and um, try to uh, shoot their missiles down. Um, and that's kind of what happens, um, except um, the Viroki start doing something which is really dangerous in peacetime, but they start doing it in wartime. And that is they make it, these interstellar jumps are instantaneous jumps from point to point that are usually only done from one star system to another. They start using their jump drive to jump from one point to another point in the star system which means they can come up very close to you all of a sudden, and they've, and they've kind of put surprise back in the battlefield, which which was not part of anybody's tactics. Yeah. And the reason it's dangerous is if you come out in, in sort of any sort of uh, um, uh, material, and, and, you, and there's a lot of little pebbles and rocks and sand out there, you're going to mess yourself up. So it's very dangerous to do it in the plane of the ecliptic of a star system. But they're willing to take the risk, and it, and, and it gets some payoff with them. Yeah. So that, that they also have a couple of very nasty surprises. One in particular that um, yes, yeah, uh -huh. up their sleeves. That's, that's sort of an intelligence thing. 
We won't reveal that, though. And, there, and there's some other tech, uh, other things about weapons that work or don't work uh, or kind of work um, because they've never really been tested yeah. before. Uh, there's elements of that that change tactics, too. But the main thing is um, nobody's ever done this before because it's so dangerous. But then when you, once you're in an interstellar war, hey, everything's dangerous, you know? So yeah. it, it just becomes another risk that you take. Uh, and that really changes things. So, uh, and and then all the tactics have to respond to that. And Sam, I think, comes up with some interesting answers to some of those things. Um, that 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 makes sense to me. It's almost like his creator was a game designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone who thinks strategically, huh? Well, um, on on the planet Katak, there's a. There's a U.S. Marine contingent down on the planet fighting for its life, and we hear we hear about them, and they're important in the in the story. But um, we do have an excellent story up at Bain.com, told from the point of view of commander that's down there. Um, this will give you a real entry into uh, Frank's Frank's world. Um, Captain J.C. Murderet, 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 probably Murderet. Okay, um, and that story is called "What We're Made Of," and it's a uh, it's free to read at Bain.com. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that story as well? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the JC is uh, uh, another character I really like a, a lot. Um, the uh, it's and, and this also deals. This story. Uh, one thing that the uh, in a number of the novels I've talked about. Um, meteoric insertion as a way of getting troops down to a planet where you literally put people in an individual drop capsule and they just come down and end up in a parrowing in, in the final part of it. Um, so we talked about it in two other novels, but I wanted to do a story, and, and, and in this novel as well, I wanted to do a story that kind of talked about the details of that in a little bit more. So you actually, the story, you really, she's a, a commander of a marine company. One of the one of the um, four marine companies that do the uh, assault around the target that's in, in the novel, and, and the novel talks about the the uh, it, it's actually a, a brigade, but they're one of one of the battalions in the brigade. What they call them cohorts is uh, a marine battalion um, and uh, U.S. Marine Battalion, and so she's one of the company, one of the commanders of the assault companies, and it it, it details kind of what goes into that and. Um, uh, how it works, uh, getting down to the surface. And then it's got, uh, in addition to the, all the, I think, pretty cool military stuff, which is uh, uh, the, the, most of the, a lot of the story, there's also the relationship between her and her superior officer, which also gets into this different culture stuff, because it, this isn't an antagonistic relationship at all. It's, very, it's a very good relationship. But she's... And you don't really figure this out until later, but she's a Mustang officer. She was promoted from the ranks. Um, he's an academy graduate who's a regular officer. And, and so he's her superior. He's actually a little younger than she is. They have a good relationship, but it's, but it's always colored by that fact that their roles, you know, where they come from is different. 
uh, they're getting to, they've, they've kind of gotten to the same place. They're both officers. He's a major. She's a captain. But but they've definitely traveled different routes getting there, and, and that and that has a lot to do with uh, kind of the resolution of the story. Yeah. Well, it's a great story, and it's free, so uh, everybody should check that out. And it'll it's a great entree into the novel as well. Um, well, one one final. Uh, question is that or or comment is that you have sam make a really at, toward the end he he kind of figures out why he's fighting and he makes a pretty good statement of that um and uh i don't know can you talk a little bit about uh, and then he gets in trouble with it and it and it motivates him um but his his speech uh really encapsulates a lot of i think why a lot of uh, warriors have fought over the the millennia. Well, it, it, it's a and it's an understanding of at least who Sam understands humans to be. Um, that that humans are. It, it, it's to begin with, it's kind of a rejection of this notion that we're solitary predators, and you know that our nature is every man for himself, and devil take the hindmost, and all that. And he says it's. It's not who we are. I mean, just take a look at us. We don't. We're not good predators, physically. You know, we're we don't have fangs or claws. Um, we we can't outrun things that can kill us. You know, uh, all we have as a survival mechanism is other human beings we can cooperate with. You know, we're by nature gregarious, not solitary, and uh, that and that what we end up fighting for is each other and whether it's the ship and most importantly in the navy he says you know the navy gets this right the most important unit is not a fleet and it's not an individual sailor it's a ship crew that's the core of of every navy is individual ship crews operating in concert but it's the you know, that crew is uh, um, that unit in cooperation is what is, is what's important, and he sees that kind of as as, as an analog to um, something that's bigger than that worth fighting for, which is human beings in general, and and the idea that you know, maybe finally humans can start working together a little better than they have traditionally. We always kind of have that dream, but but he he sees this as maybe a step forward. There. This need to cooperate against this ex against this external threat maybe is a way of uh, people starting to come together. And he has some thoughts about the United States as being uniquely placed as a culturally to do that. The book is Chain of Command by Frank Chadwick. It's now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Tony, as always. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. 
To this end, master trader Sean Yoskalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 12 Jemmy Atha's Jumble Stop Hazemthul and Tolly went together to the repairs side of the station, him walking two of his short steps ahead on her left so as not to impede her should she have to pull her weapon. It was the configuration they had worked out as most efficient for them as partners in Surebleak Port Security and Hazenthal took comfort from it. Let those they passed in the narrow halls grin outright at the disparity in their heights. That had happened often enough on Surebleak Port. And they had soon enough learned that the tall and small team was effective. Possibly they would learn so here, though it was Tolly and Pilot Tokel who would carry the honor of the team. Pilot Tokel, they had left aboard Terrigan, so that she might complete her studies. That was well enough, though Hazenthal wondered what sort of study might keep the pilot, with all of her advantages, so long. She dared not ask Tolly, not here in the halls, when anyone might hear. Perhaps she would ask Tokel herself, when they were all three again a ship. In the meanwhile, here came the door to the repairs section. The name of their contact was Stu, being the person with whom Pilot Waitley had lately dealt. Pilot Waitley was the scout's blood sister, as the matter had been explained to the house troop. She was not herself either a scout or a soldier, though she commanded her own vessel. Hazenthal had met the pilot when she had recently visited Surebleak, and had thought her young for command, even for one of the scout's kin. Certainly, she was not beyond error, even, as Tolly would have it, grievous error. It's like leaving a newborn baby to fend for himself what she did, he had exclaimed during one of their team sessions. He was hot-voiced on this topic, as on no other even when speaking of those who would enslave his will to theirs. Like leaving an armed and mobile newborn, Pilot Tokel had said, in what Hazenthal was coming to understand as her humor, who has jump capability. Not seven together he ain't jumping, 
Tolly had objected more temperately and squinted at the pilot. You think? Do you think the computation beyond his capabilities? Tolly had sighed and rubbed the bridge of his nose. Well, that's part of the problem. Seven old ships with comps so cramped it takes all 13 of them, including what looks to be a lunchroom comp to hold one live brain. Old ships, but sure, say he does the math and jumps. If one comp blows or one ship shreds, he's gone. You know and I know he's got no backup. Even if the ships had redundant systems when they came in, we gotta believe the yards pulled whatever was worth having. He shook his head and fell silent. And if you, forgive me, were to be shot in the head, you would be gone, Pilot Tokel said, after it seemed that he had no more words. All life is vulnerable. It's the nature of the condition. Heads up, Haz, Tolly said now. The door opened before them, and she saw that the warning had been more than a friendly reminder to focus. Tolly walked tall through the doorway. She, however, was required to cant forward from the waist in order not to crack her forehead against the frame. Past the door was a room divided by a counter, with another door at the far end behind the counter. Also behind the counter was a stocky Terran male, cap snugged down over hairless head, orange jacket with Jemiatha supply and repair stenciled on the breast, open over a dark sweater. He was in close conversation with a person considerably taller, pale hair caught in a careless knot at the back of the head, skin nearly as dark as the worn jump pilot's jacket. Might want to make voice contact first, the stocky man was saying. But you're the pro, station priority. He cut himself off as they entered, raising a hand toward the dark pilot, fingers shaping a fast, hold that. Pilots, he said, turning their way. He looked up at Hazenthal's face, down to Tolly's, and stayed there. Something we can do for you? Looking for stew, Tolly said in his easy way. Captain Waitley sent us. Sorry it took longer than we wanted to get to you. The dark pilot had straightened and was regarding them interestedly out of star blue eyes. Stu blinked and shook his head, mouth going wry. Took long enough that I put out a call on my own, he said, nodding at the other. Hope you had other business out this way, cause we got our problem covered. Tolly turned slightly to look up into the dark pilot's face. He hesitated minutely, assessing the other, Hazenthal thought, then put out his hand in the Terran manner. I'm Tolly Jones, he said. Pleased to meet you. The dark pilot met his hand with a will, a grin, reshaping the stern face into pleasantness. Inkirani yo. The voice was light, and to Hazenthal's ear bore no accent. Mentor Beric Jones, it is an honor. That's a leap, Tolly said, suffering his hand to be held. Not so much of a leap if we are here on the same business.
Pilot Yo released his hand and turned back to Stu. You are given an unprecedented opportunity, Master Vanagoff. The best among us has come to your aid. I cannot allow you to prefer me to mentor Beric Jones. Stu took his cap off and swiped a hand over his shiny head, resettled the cap, and sighed. The station's necessity is to make certain that AI is stable, which I'm telling you it ain't. We got a concern that the next misunderstanding is going to end in us taking some damage. And that's not unrealistic. Got some trigger-happy folk who are thinking cannon is the answer. I'm not one of them, but it wouldn't break my heart if the Admiral was gone tomorrow. In fact, that'd be my preference. In the general way of things, we ain't got pirate trouble. And while we're grateful for what he did to help us, his voice faded out, as if he had heard himself say that the best reward for duty done well was an end to all duty, and reeled under the blow he had dealt his own honor. Tolly turned his hands palm up. Something that might help you decide between us, he said. My intention is to socialize the admiral out there. I reviewed such information as Captain Waitley sent on, and I think I've got a pretty good idea of what happened and why it happened. Damn shame it came to that, but I'll tell you straight out, it's no wonder the Admiral's confused. I think I can get him unconfused and on course. Stu sighed. And if you can't? Master Vanikoff, please, you cannot think that Mentor Beric Jones will fail. Well, he can be excused for thinking it, Tolly said, before the counterman could reply. I've failed plenty in my life, and it's a fair question. What'll happen if I fail this time? He nodded to Stu. If the Admiral's resistant to socialization, if he's gone too far down chancy lines of reasoning then I'll shut him down. All the way down, understand? It's kindest. That, said Inkirani Yo, voice hushed, is why he is great, Master Vanagoff. And you? Tolly asked. I? The other mentor swayed into a bow. A lock of pale hair escaped the messy knot and curled against the stern cheek. Master Vanagoff's proposed commission to myself was that a rogue AI must be removed from its proximity to the station. Knowing that it is sometimes difficult for one who is, forgive me, Master Vanagoff, not a trained mentor, to see the line between rogue and obdurate, I left my options open. I do confess, though, mentor, that I very much feared there would be a death in it. Only because my understanding of the situation is that Admiral Bunter results from a download rather than a physical installation. In my ignorance, it seemed that this circumstance considerably lessened the opportunity for a happy outcome. I saw that too, Tolly said seriously. I think we can work with it. The key's going to be moving him into one installation. 
What he's got now, with 13 lobes and seven bodies, I'm betting he's losing computational power just keeping himself together. Which could be why he hasn't threatened the station yet, Stu said. Tolly shook his head. No, it's more likely you're right in your original thinking there. The station hasn't violated anything that the Admiral takes for rules. I consider that the station's safe as can be, because the Admiral's imperative is to protect the station. Doesn't help the regulars, Stu pointed out. Agreed, which is why we're going to socialize, shift, stabilize. Once he's settled in snug, with a good, clear rule set, he'll be in a better place to make his own decisions on where he wants to be and what he wants to be doing. Right now, he's guarding the station because Captain Waitley set the imperative. He doesn't know he has a choice. There came a silence, during which Stu looked from one to the other, sighed, and shook his head. I'm thinking that the job ought to go to the one who got to the site soonest, he said. Tolly shifted and stilled as the other mentor turned. Master Vanikoff, in all seriousness, you have better than I, standing before you, with his assistant at his side. If there can be a good result from this, mentor Beric Jones will produce it. If skill produces only sorrow, Master Beric Jones will administer the last program with respect and dispatch. I cannot urge you too strongly to grasp the best tool to your hand. Mentor Yo turned to Tolly then. If you would allow it, I would observe and assist. It seems to me that the consolidation from seven to one may require more than a master and apprentice might easily accommodate. Forgive me if I am too forward. Tolly offered a small bow. There is a third member of our team who I must consult before I can accept your generous offer he said formally. What I must know before I do that is if my services and our plan will be acceptable to the station. Stu sighed again and shook his head, throwing his hands up. All right, look, I don't care who does what or how. All I want is that the Admiral, out of my hair and gone from Jemiathas. You sort it out between you all. Yes, said Inkirani Yo, and yes, said Tolly. He looked to the other mentor. I will talk with my teammate and contact you with our decision. That is acceptable, Inkirani Yo said, bowing. My ship is Ahab Isaias. I look forward, if it is not presumptuous, to witnessing your practice of our art, mentor. Renzel Deajudin felt the flicker of something along the link he shared with his lifemate. Merely a flicker, rendered in what one might term watercolors when one had been used to receiving oils. He reminded himself that it was in a good cause, this tempering of his perception. In fact, in the cause of keeping him sane and alive until he until his peculiar and addictive gift 
was needed for the task for which, so he now suspected, he had been born. Muted or not, he had felt something, and he glanced up from his book to find Anthora had abandoned her reading entirely, head-lifted, silver-blue eyes fixed on a corner of the ceiling. On, rather, Renzel corrected himself, on a point beyond the corner of the ceiling, though how far beyond it was not possible for him to ascertain. Who calls, beloved? he asked softly, in case it was something serious. She blinked and lowered her gaze to his face, her own bearing a slightly crooked smile. No one calls, she said, and laid her hand gently on his knee. Paddy has opened her name day gift. That's all. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a clever Cole Porter lyric about a fistful of Viroki patents and a bottle of beef eaters as well, as the music of the spheres piped into his very own space elevator for Frank Chadwick, the author of the new military SF novel, Chain of Command. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>